Well, I don't normally do this. I don't normally come back and fact check something after an episode is over. But I've been feeling a bit weird about the last episode because allegations were made against other public figures, fellow journalists, about the inaccuracy of their work that I wasn't able to fact check in real time. So I just wanted to close a button on it. And without relitigating anything, I think if a guest makes an accusation that one of our colleagues is lying or behaving inappropriately, and that guest has been in a major public stoush with that person, I, and, and if, if we then leave the conversation as we did by saying, okay, the only thing we need to establish now is the factual veracity of the claims being made by the person who's not here, who we're talking about and throwing under the bus, then I think it does behoove me to come back and verify whether or not those facts were true or false. Here's a little of how the conversation with Diana Anderson on the last episode went. And so, like, there are different reasons that people detransition. So I'm not denying that detransitioning happens. Got it. But the idea that it is something where somebody didn't question enough or they didn't, they were rushed through these environments. I don't, I don't think that is happening. Right. If the, if the criticism is that, that the, that the, the sort of medical system is not rushing people through, does that mean that if it did rush people through, or if it did start rushing people through, then writing such articles would be responsible because your earlier point was that such articles can get misused as pretexts for people who are transphobic to pass laws that strip trans people of their rights. That would yeah, still be the case. We, that would still yeah. be the case if those articles were true. Yeah, if we if we had statistic proof that there was suddenly a rush of people going through the system way too quickly, like they get handed their their testosterone prescription at the first appointment or whatever, and they are, you know, they've only been identifying as whatever for, you know, three days uh, publicly um, or whatever. Like, I would think there would be a responsibility to do that, but that's not what's happening. And that, right. unfortunately, is the primary narrative that we have around trans kids. Got it. But I'm just I'm trying to clarify. If it, trans it, kids. it would it would be responsible to report on that, even if it gave ammunition to transphobes. Yeah, because that would be a thing that's actually happening, and therefore needs regulation in some way. Okay. Maybe some new standards of care. So uh, now it's just a factual question public. about whether or not the things that Emily Bazelon and Jesse Single say are happening are actually happening. I don't think they are. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, that makes it easy to. Yeah. It certainly makes it. Uh, it certainly makes yeah. the whole debate a lot easier to resolve. I've, call, we just I've have called to, Jesse on the, out on that before. Um, and so yeah, I'm we just happy have to, to do it again. I don't. We think, just have. Yeah. We just have to establish whether or not what they're saying is true, or uh, in order to know whether or not it's worth writing. Because your earlier criticism of them yeah. was that we should we should dismiss such articles or, you know, punish the writers of such articles because they have a bad impact on the transgender community they don't act in well, the interest yeah. of transgender and people but that's a different claim than saying because that the they are, are now that now that we're just yeah. questioning the veracity of the, the articles it's easier to, to adjudicate so there you have it we left it as an open question uh that needed to be fact checked this is a little fact check and uh jesse single who is the target of diana's ire will join me in just a moment uh just because he 
knows a lot more than I do about whether or not <laughs> the accusations are, are correct. So you will have heard from Diana and you will have heard from Jesse and you can make up your own mind. I should j- just clarify, I've been, since that episode dropped, swept up in my own bizarre, it's just bizarre, the level of hostility. And it's so, I don't know, it's so, I feel so, I feel for trans people so much that this controversy is distracting from the real fight for transgender equality and compassion and rights. Like what? It is such a bad publicity strategy. I mean, I think about the the strategy that fueled the wild success of the LGBT movement. It basically went from being in the 70s a perverted fringe community where to believe in tolerance towards gay people was to condone men shoving their willies up into disgusting places of the human anatomy with other men in a totally unnatural and godless frenzy. And the conversation was changed from that nasty framing to a question of, do you believe in equality for all people? Because this community of people simply want the same things that you want. They want no discrimination in the workplace. They want equal equal opportunity to get housing and rent. Uh, They want to not be fired for what they do on their own time. And if possible, they'd also like to start families and adopt kids and get married. And by reframing this to these very reasonable-sounding sort of mainstream common-sense instincts that heartland voters had, you had probably the most successful civil rights movement in the history of the world. I mean, when you think about the fact that as recently as the 90s, a majority of people thought that homosexuality was perverted, and in many jurisdictions in Western democracies, it was still illegal. In Tasmania, it was illegal in the 90s. Uh, And the the idea that it, it is now so normal that it's boring is a fantastic triumph. And I just wish that the conversation around trans rights was able to find a way to pivot from these deeply arcane and hostile ideas about biology and whether or not trans women are women and the same as women, whether or not there's anything special about women who grew up as girls versus women who grew up as boys, this insistence on there being no no biological differences between men and women. There's this whole universe of, I suppose, university level post-structuralist sort of nonsense and it wouldn't even have to be nonsense even if it were true it would still be such a hard sell to people who have a common sense traditional view of sex and gender that it would not be the best tactic i don't understand why this is the strategy anyway i just feel for all of my trans friends who would just rather not just like stop helping they would say to these activists stop helping all we want is to go about our lives we just want equal rights so how can we best convince non-trans people to give us equal rights 
Is it by shouting in their faces about what bigots they are? Or is it by trying to have a dance with them in which we bring them to the table? Anyway, so what happened after my conversation with Diana Anderson dropped is she wasn't happy and she went on Twitter, listened to me get increasingly frustrated with this guy, she said, with a link. She said, uh, it's a mess. Uh, I knew there was a likelihood. This is a whole Twitter thread. Um, and sorry, I just said she. Uh, my apologies. Uh, they uh, they write, uh, I knew there was a, a likelihood this was going to be a be bad faith going on, I assume that means going in, and I literally took pages of notes to prepare for that, but I wasn't prepared for him to eschew talking about the book almost entirely, etc., etc. I do stand by what I said, and I do even more so now than I did then believe the quote-unquote debate around trans kids to be irresponsible, and journalists who push it, like single and now Zepps, are irresponsible for doing so. And then there's just a, a cavalcade, a tirade of sympathetic voices these this is the way twitter works right so you know someone named joseph says there was this great moment at the end where he's trying to make the case that society is too credulous towards trans kids where you let out the perfect exasperated sigh it just marked the moment so perfectly just so exhausting i thought you did such a great job Another person named Sarah. I'm listening to this now. You kept your calm so well, Diana. I wanted to wring his neck. We're not dogs. Oh, my God, the fact you had to say that. Another person named Aubrey. Oh, Dee, what an absolute nightmare. I'm so sorry. To which Diana writes, I'm fine with everything I said and argued. It was just frustrating to clearly be in such a conversation. I have no doubt you delivered, writes Aubrey. It's just such a forever nightmare to end up in this kind of bad faith conversation, to feel so misled. You deserve so much better. Good God. And Diana replies, I take heart in the fact that it was me and not some other person who would be less able to bounce back from it. It was in bad faith. I can warn other people now, they write, and that's a good thing. And another tweeter says, this is wrong on so many levels. Another person, Julian, with they, them pronouns, I'm so sorry. Another person, D, I'm sorry. Megan writes, sigh. Sarah writes, what the fuck? Another person, what the fuck? Did you listen to the conversation between Diana and me? If you haven't, go back and listen to it before you listen to any of this. Are those responses... Do they comport with what you took away from that conversation? That I was acting in bad faith and was being bullying? I do fess up to one mistake, which is occasionally misgendering Diana. Um, it, look, it's still a new thing. I try my very best. Uh, I think it's I think it's better treated with whimsy uh, when we get it wrong than with aggression. But uh, I'm sorry to, to Diana for uh, initially the blurb of the podcast uh, said she and Josh argue about blah, blah, blah. And as soon as that was pointed out to me, I, I changed it to had my producer change it back to they and, and Josh because uh, Diana is a they, them, not a she, her. So I'm sorry about that. Um, it is the case that, you know, many of us make that mistake, including I would note Diana Anderson themselves on Diana's website in the blurb of one of their books, Damaged Goods, uh, 
It says on their website, Diana Anderson offers a fresh approach to the purity conversation, one that opens a new dialogue with the most influential Christian authors of her generation. Of her generation. Of Diana Anderson's generation. Her generation, it says on their website. So, Diana, the best of us can still have trouble with misgendering, including, it seems, yourself. Um, look, let's just hear from Jesse Single. Uh, this is the last that I'm going to say about any of this. It doesn't particularly interest me, uh, this subject. Uh, I just want equality for everybody, and I want trans people to be safe and well, and I want young people who are confused about their gender, who may not ultimately go on to be trans, to be safe and well as well. And so open communication and open dialogue is the only way to make those two things happen. Uh, have a wonderful week, and I'll see you next time. Jesse, sometimes think people say things on the podcast which I kind of know are untrue or I know are true, and then there are other times where it's beyond my ability to fact-check them in real time. So I wanted to to just get you on so that I didn't leave dangling uh, any of those claims that Diana made. Where... Where should I even begin to understand how to fact check the things that need to be fact checked out of my conversation with them? Yeah. Can I start by saying something just a little bit rude? <laughs> yeah. So I was I was made when I saw your interview with Diane, I was a little bit nervous. I was made aware of Diane last year. Um they did a tweet storm about me and my work that sort of caught on. And um it contains stuff about my work that like was really just lies. I'll read one sentence. I won't, I won't get too deep into this. We'll get in the meat of, of your interview, but quote, his most controversial piece, a cover story in the Atlantic about transgender kids repeats the same focus on detransitioning and speaks to almost no transgender people or people friendly to trans affirming healthcare. This was a 12,000 word piece where I interviewed at least a half dozen trans people. And I didn't interview a single clinician who was unfriendly to trans-affirming healthcare. So to me, that gets into a different category from disagreements, some of which we'll talk about, and into just like being a little bit dishonest. So going in, I was a little bit skeptical. Um, but if you want, I can go through and, and respond to sort of specific claims they made that I disagree with. Is that the best yeah, way to do this? Give, give people first a sense of what it's like to be in the position in the position that you're in. This piece, Gee, America's I, chief America's chief transphobe. You mean America's chief transphobic hate monger, hate speech monger? Uh, I mean, back in. July, August of 2018, I guess you probably wrote this, what, you must have started at the end of 2017. This was not as hot an issue. Did you, th I mean, how, how has it impacted your life? Um, overwhelmingly positively, with the one exception that there's a very angry group of people on Twitter and a fairly large number of them and some people in journalism who since then have been... Um, sort of trying to destroy my career and reputation. I think I was seen as saying stuff you're just really not allowed to say. Um, the interesting thing is that you might agree or disagree, but I feel like four years later, there's now been like a mini spate of pieces making similar arguments in multiple other outlets. People seem to be acknowledging that at least some of what was in my Atlantic piece is at least worth discussing. So it seems like the trajectory has been in my favor journalistically. Yeah, but those people then trigger endless pylons with people, uh, you know, wanting to cancel their subscriptions en masse to the publications that they write for as well. But what I tried to do in the last episode was to, at, at the very least, 
on the question of whether or not journalists should be able to, and for people who haven't read Jesse's excellent piece, I've got it in front of me. It's massive. You just said 12,000 words, is it? It's like you print it yeah, out. 12 or 13, I think. Pages yeah. or something. And there are like bazillions of people who you speak to and tons of gender experts who are trans themselves and clinicians who work with trans people and the individual case studies of trans people. And as far as I can tell, these are different uh, case studies, not all of them, because, you know, it is a small community from the ones that Emily Bazelon wrote about in the New York Times. Her piece is also excellent and massively long. And these are not pieces that are seeking to, there is no fair reading of these pieces that can have you coming away thinking, that this piece is an attempt to only tell one side of the story. There is in both, in all of these particular pieces, and I want to consciously exclude these from the right-wing ratbaggery, which relentlessly focuses on this stuff and spreads misinformation about the mutilation of children and says that, you know, uh, trans women are actually just men or something like that. That's a separate class of, uh, of kind of activism uh, in disguised as journalism. This sort of journalism is, as as far as I can tell, uh, balanced. And what I wanted to do when Diana was essentially saying that it's irresponsible to write such pieces was just to get them to clarify whether or not it's irresponsible because of the impact that it can have, even though it's true, or whether it's irresponsible because it's actually untrue that there is a problem here or some controversy to be reported on. And uh, I think somewhat to my credit, I was able to to get them to establish that it is only a bad thing to write about because it is a beat up and it's untrue. So yeah. I want to get your thoughts about that criticism. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a bunch of actual, you know, factual quibbles with her, but on, on that one, I mean, their basic argument was that our work gets cited by right wingers and, um, Let's just focus on that because I know you did narrow her down and, and we'll talk about that question of whether it is happening. But you constantly see this. You see people arguing that my article or Bazelon's article got cited in right wing court cases. And um, for one thing, a couple one time that's happened with me, they just sort of misrepresented my article. They said that I said that uh, transition doesn't alleviate gender dysphoria on average, which is just the opposite of what I said. I have no control over people distorting my article. But more broadly, if they're citing our articles to say there's medical controversy over these treatments, that's true. That is a fact. You can't tell journalists, don't report on facts, don't report on unfolding controversies because some bad politician might do something bad with it. I mean, I think a good example here is the satanic sex abuse panic. People reported on these recovered memories, on these horrible false accusations of pedophilia, an actual pedophile could use that to say, oh, see, the concerns over pedophilia are, are, are overstated. We shouldn't worry about pedophiles. A bad person could choose to use any sort of information to make a bad argument about something. That's not As journalists, we can't really worry about that as long as we're telling the truth. Now, on the question of uh, detransition rates and clinical protocols, detransition rates, we have no idea what the detransition rate is for kids who go on blockers or hormones as kids or teenagers in the States. We have no data on that. Uh, Diane confidently proclaimed the rates of detransition uh, overall and the rates of regret for surgery were 1%. I've seen those estimates flying around. They're completely inapplicable to an American setting. They're also from these big samples of adults. Uh, so that's one reason they're inapplicable where there's, there's major problems with the data. So there's this one systematic review from 2021 that found a 1% regret rate for surgery. 
I actually hired someone to look into it and to see what the loss to follow-up rate was in these 27 studies. That's um, basically you reach out to the folks who got surgery at your clinic and you see what percentage of them you can get in touch with. With uh, The the authors of these studies couldn't get in touch with 28% of the patients who got surgery. So if you can't get in touch with a quarter of your patients, you can't then claim that you only have a 1% uh, regret rate because you don't know. You don't know where a quarter of your patients are or how they're doing. So that that's one issue with the um, you know regret and, and oh, sorry, Jesse, can you just jump? Can you just explain detransition and desisting? Because I think we might be setting the bar quite high as well. I don't think most reasonable minded people who are interested in the contours of this debate are only concerned about people who fully you know or at least medically transition and then regret it. It's also a more sort of nuanced question about social and cultural. Uh, transition. So what's desisting and what's detransitioning? Yeah. So the terms are often conflated and it sort of depends on whether a kid socially transitions or is allowed to by their parents. I define desistance as having gender dysphoria and then it goes away on its own without transitioning. Other people define it a little bit differently. I find it useful to define desistance that way and detransition as transitioning socially or medically and then deciding to undo that and to re-identify as your birth sex. So when we say that 1% of people who transition come to regret it, that may be true, but it may obscure, even if that were true, it would still potentially obscure a higher proportion of people who uh, feel that they have gender dysphoria or are confused about their gender for whom that then just fades, fades away. Goes away in time. Go into a different yeah. phase of their life. Yeah. And, and the, there, there's a whole other issue with the desistance research, which is this pile of studies showing that it really depends on the study. 60, 70, 80, 90% of kids desist. Those were from very different settings. They were from mostly clinics that did not encourage social transition. My view is that the evidence strongly suggests that a good number of kids who have gender dysphoria at some point in childhood, if you're talking about kids in childhood, grow out of it in time. For kids whose gender dysphoria first manifests at 13 or 14 or 15, I think we have no idea because we have basically no research on that population. Okay. Got it. Proceed to <laughs> your next point. <laughs> yes. I feel like there's a list, Jesse. There is a list. There's always a list uh, of my of my many grievances. Um, just on that point of she said the same detransitioners are sort of recycled over and over. I found that really silly because you could say the same thing about either trans people or gender affirming clinicians. So for a while, Jazz Jennings and Caitlyn Jenner were disproportionately represented and quoted just because there weren't yet that many well-known or media savvy trans people. Clinicians wise, for a long time, Joanna Olson Kennedy and Diane Aronsaf sort of dominated the scene. And then Jack Turbin and some other really enthusiastic proponents of these treatments arrive. So it just doesn't really make sense to say that just because a few detransitioners show up in multiple articles, there aren't a lot of them. That's just like how any new population works. They only have a few people who talk to the media at first. Mm. Um, Yeah. So I mean, it does, but then how do you establish whether or not they are representatives of a large cohort or whether they're isolated cases? Yeah, we have no data on that. So that that's all I'll say. I, I won't even I think the number of detransitioners is going up just anecdotally. I can't point to any data. But I like why uh why are no clinicians in the states collecting good data on this? It's just it's astonishing. I mean, this is a big country with lots of clinics who do things in different ways. I don't know if the, what the situation is in Australia, but the lack of data is a real problem. So right. um I'm not gonna respond to Diane saying 
the detransition rate is low by saying actually it's high. I'm going to say we have no idea because we have no idea. Right, and the other, I mean, the other, the other retort that one could make to the fact that some of these same case studies show up over and over again is that yes, they may be the people who are willing and well willing to willing to speak with the media and well versed enough to do so. Uh, but the clinicians who are quoted in your piece and Bazelon's piece, it seems like there are clinicians who who and I've spoken to them here in Australia who see a lot of this, and just because those you know, young people don't necessarily want to be paraded in front of the media and their parents don't feel comfortable doing that doesn't mean that there isn't anecdotal evidence from the people who work at the front lines who are. Yeah. Also detransitioners, it's it's unfair and it's not right, but detransitioners, when they go public, often come in for horrible treatment from some other trans people, not, not all trans people, but like some activists really treat detransitioners poorly and immediately call them sort of right-wing chuds basically that was that was right. part of what diane did she's um, they said that you know the families featured in my article were part of anti-trans groups i i, I struggle with that because i think if you or, or your child had a procedure that you don't think benefited them and then you want to raise awareness about diagnostic standards i don't think that alone makes you anti-trans personally right so it struck me that there were two things that they were saying that were that were critical of you. One was that everyone who reports on this issue cherry picks the same handful of detransitioners as their case studies, and there are only that means that there are only a few cases of this in existence. Another was um, Diane said that no thirteen-year-olds are just walking into clinics and getting hormones. That, that, that this concern just isn't happening. That it is that 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 the affirming care is happening at a slow enough pace and with enough caution that we don't need to worry about it. Yeah. So the I actually, I think I wrote down the direct quote, quote, you don't walk into a Planned Parenthood at 14 and get hormones. Um, that jumped out at me because it, it's technically true. But like, if you're 15 in Oregon, you can very much walk into a Planned Parenthood and get hormones. In other states, you can be 16. In um, like, to, to Anderson's credit, she did say she'd acknowledge there's a reason to be concerned if folks were getting referred to hormones on the first visit. And while they're right, we don't have good data on this, we have we do have a ton of anecdotal accounts. There was actually just a big, excellent investigation published by Reuters on this very subject, like four days ago. It basically compared American-style gender clinics to the, the pioneers in this field, the um, you know, the so-called Dutch approach. Now, the Dutch approach is very careful and gradual. It takes place over many months. It excludes a lot of kids because they won't transition kids, or at least back then they wouldn't. Uh, Kids who had serious mental health problems or unsupportive families. The whole point was to really call the group to the kids most likely to benefit from transitioning and live well as the other sex. So what these Reuters reporters did is they called a bunch of gender clinics and got to know their protocols and compared what American clinics are doing to the Dutch approach. That is the source of the little bit of research we have on this. Direct quote, in interviews with Reuters, doctors and other staff at 18 gender clinics across the country described the processes for evaluating patients. None, I'm, I'm emphasizing this, none described anything like the months-long assessments the Dutch did. So we know there's a lot of clinics who do way less assessment than the Dutch. As for first visit hormones or blockers, it does happen sometimes. The Reuters article mentions this. I have anecdotal accounts of my own. I have in my 2018 article, um, Laura Edwards-Leeper, who's another pioneering gender clinician, talks about all the pressure on her to give kids hormones very quickly, how she's had stuff thrown at her at conferences. On top of all that, you have a lot of clinicians giving quotes to the media, like A.J. Eckert or Joanna Olson-Kennedy saying explicitly, 
they don't really believe in mental health evaluations, even for 13 and 14 and 15 year olds. They view that as gatekeeping. So if they're saying that explicitly and they clearly represent a faction of clinicians who don't believe in much assessment, how can Diane Anderson then say, no, there's always good assessment going on? It does, what does she know or what do they know that A.J. Eckert and Joe Olson Kennedy don't know? Right. In other words, there are, you don't even need to sort of, you don't need to launch this as a critique about the way that the care is being provided because the providers of the care themselves are the ones who are saying that they're proud of it. They, they, should, they shouldn't yeah. be interrogating anything else that's going on in this young person's life. Yeah, I'm not sure they'd say it that bluntly, and I can't say for sure <laughs> Eckert or Olson Kennedy would would do a one appointment thing. But the Reuters folks who did an excellent job provided examples of, of first appointment hormones and blockers. And, and the point is, clinicians themselves, the vanguard clinicians who are most enthusiastic about this stuff and least concerned uh, with the stuff I'm concerned about, they're very open about it. They don't like quote unquote gatekeeping. Now, the idea of calling it gatekeeping when it's a 13 or 14 year old with multiple mental health problems, that could be a whole other episode. But the point is they, they tell us how they do their job and Anderson seems to be ignoring what they're saying. I'm just looking through your article, Jesse, for and trying trying to tally up the number of people because what I thought was interesting is this is this claim that it's sort of under researched and that this is just a uh, a an opinion piece in the guise of a of journalism. And just as I go through it, so you start with Claire, who followed this person, Miles McKenna, who's a YouTuber. Uh, you quote Robin Morantz Hennig in National Geographic, and then Nate Sharon, who's a psychiatrist who oversaw a gender clinic, who's trans, and then Christina Olson, who you've mentioned, University of Washington researcher, and then uh, you talk about the Center of Expertise on Gender Dysphoria in Amsterdam, and Thomas Steensma, who's a psychologist and researcher at the Dutch Clinic, and Joshua Safer, who's one of the authors of the Endocrine Society's Clinical Practice Guideline for the Treatment of Gender Dysphoria. Uh, you mentioned Aaron Jansen and quote them, the clinical director of the Gender and Sexuality Service at Hassenfield Children's Hospital in New York. You, you cite Rebecca Kling, who's an educator at the National Center for Transgender Equality in Washington, D.C. Christine Jorgensen, the first American to become widely known for transitioning. You look at uh, the case of that person. Erica Anderson, a trans woman and clinical psychologist at UC San Francisco who you speak to, Zinnia Jones, a trans woman, uh, who you speak to for the piece, Diane Ehrensaf, the Director of Mental Health at UC San Francisco's Child and Adolescent Gen Gender Center. You quote Diane in this, Diane Berg, a co-director of the National Center for Gender Spectrum Health. You speak to her for the piece. You talk to Max Robinson, a 17-year-old uh, who got a double mastectomy. You talk to Kari Stella, who's the author of a blog, called Guide on Raging Stars, who socially transitioned at 15. You talk to Carrie Callahan, a 36-year-old in Ohio who detransitioned after identifying as trans for four years. You talk to the psychologist Laura Edwards-Leeper, uh, and you talk to Scott Padberg, who's one of Edward Leeper's patients, uh, a teenager, you talk to Michelle Forcier, a pediatrician who specializes in youth gender issues in Rhode Island, uh, and Delta, who was 13 and homeschooled when she came out as genderqueer. Oh, and yeah, Joanna Olson-Kennedy, who you also mentioned, a physician who specializes in pediatric and adolescent medicine at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, and who's the medical director of the Center for Trans Youth 
health and development. I mean, I'm not let me just, sure. Let me what just read the want. quote again. His most controversial piece speaks to almost no transgender people or people friendly to trans affirming healthcare. It's a lie. I know it's impolite to say they're lying. And I don't I don't like when people lie. I wish we could have a more honest discussion about that. Sorry. So what's happening here? Jesse, because like I think, I mean, obviously I'm copping flack for even touching this as well as everyone does, but I'm fairly committed to just having, I just don't think that any noble social or cultural cause is going to be successful unless, unless it's based on the widest possible sense of agreement and honesty and can robustly argue for itself. And that requires honesty. And I, I, I don't understand what's happening here. I don't understand what the strategy is. I, I try to have like a very open and generous conversation with just a bit of pushback and a bit of intellectual kind of rumble in a good faith way. And it comes out the other end as a turd sausage. And I'm not sure <laughs> why. It's it's just it's such a toxic issue and it's hard in the states because we really do have right-wing legislators trying to ban these treatments outright which is horrible in Texas they're trying to take kids from their families if they socially transition it's a nightmare it's the most polarizing issue imaginable um there was just a everyone's talking about a John Stewart segment where I haven't watched the whole thing yet but he's clearly taking the stance that these treatments are great and there's no legitimate questions about them because the only people with questions are maga chuds so it's like you take an issue that's already genuinely complicated and really deals with tricky bioethical questions because we're talking about kids then you layer on top of that american culture war horror and and politicization horror and polarization heart it's just it's a really bad mix and it frustrates me that the folks who disagree with me um the honest ones send me emails and i sometimes talk to them but it seems like in social media and the media more broadly a lot of like really dishonest demagogues get to set the tones of the discussion and i i just Really, the more I've looked into the data on this stuff, in my Atlantic piece, I actually went too soft on the evidence for these treatments. It's it's borderline non-existent in an American context. It really is. We desperately need more What's data. What's non-existent? Evidence for what? That that it helps kids to put them on blockers or hormones or give them double mastectomies. It's like it. I I was I was. What do you mean by kids there? Because the retort would be, well, we're not doing that to kids. I mean, we're we're allowing kids to socially transition, and then at some point. Yeah, well, they'll you know the young right, but that's that's bullshit. So the the youngest you'd go on blockers is what ten or eleven, maybe nine in some cases. Uh, hormones are regularly given to twelve, thirteen, fourteen year olds. Surgery in a study from twenty eighteen, Olson Kennedy was referring kids as young as thirteen for surgery. They just took the age require. Anderson was happy with this. They just took the age requirements out of the standards of care. Very young kids are going on these treatments. So there's like I, I understand. It is true that you'll get right-wing demagogues saying like, oh, they're going to castrate five-year-olds. That kind of thing doesn't happen. That's a lie. But like, no, it's it's sort of disingenuous when people are like, oh, well, you're just socially transitioning at six or seven. Because like, I don't know. I don't have kids. My sense is two years pass really quickly. And then they're on the cusp of puberty. And then, you know, because they're socially transitioned, they either need to be a boy with breasts or they have to go on puberty blockers. And we don't really know what puberty blockers do to kids when they're on them for a while. There's a lot of uncertainty here. And I wish people would recognize that. Cause again, like you can yell at 
you know, journalists all you want. You can yell at Emily Bazelon. You can yell at me. We're talking about developing bodies and kids in a context where multiple European countries have looked at the data of this and be like, whoa, what are we doing? We need to slow down here. I'm talking about Sweden and Finland there and to a lesser extent, the UK. Okay. Thanks, Jesse. So just to, 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 to wrap that up, uh, I think of, if the two criticisms of your work and basically of every other journalist who touches this is that they're cherry picking the same handful of detransitioners, your response would be, uh, yes, maybe guilty as charged, but that's because there are very few who are put forward and who are courageous enough to withstand the torrent of abuse that they're going to get and who want to be public about this, but it's offset by the fact that there are clinicians who deal with people all the, all the time who are, are seeing what's going on and we don't need to necessarily expose every single one. And on the second point of the claim that no 14-year-olds are walking into clinics and getting drugs, you would say, yes, also true, but sort of trivially true because... No, they are No, they are walking into clinics and getting drugs. They are. They are. Yeah. Some right. of them are. I mean, with, it, it just depends on... Whether they need parental consent. If the question is whether kids are getting hormones on their first uh, visit, the answer is yes. And then just quickly, the only thing I would add to the detransition thing is there are more and more of them. So I just think people who claim it's just the same few, just go to the Reddit detransition subreddit. If you're a journalist, just try to get in touch with them. There are more and more people who are coming forward. Jesse, thanks for clarifying. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, Josh. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.